Hello, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist, episode 29. Welcome back. Please follow this podcast and comment on my Facebook page at Cunning of Geist. Now, before we begin, let me again state the purpose of this podcast overall, and that is I'm trying to promote the basic notion that we have minds. I know that sounds pretty simplistic, but uh, in today's world, a lot of people actually deny any kind of thinking. Anyway, I also believe that that our minds are, are capable of, of creating purpose in our lives, and and as such, we can, as free agents, we can act upon that purpose. So that's the overall purpose, but let's get on to the current topic of this episode. And today I'm going to be tackling a very tough philosophical question, and that is, why is there something rather than nothing? Martin Heidegger actually called it the most fundamental question of all metaphysics. Jim Holt, author Jim Holt, wrote a book on this subject in 2012, and he expressed uh, this question very well. He stated this specific question of why is there something rather than nothing is so profound it would occur only to a metaphysician, yet so simple it would occur only to a child, which is a pretty interesting quote. Now, we're going to take a deep dive into this question um, in this episode, and but in particular, I'm going to be exploring why this may be a false dilemma, a false choice. The fact that we say, why is there something rather than nothing, we're implying an either-or situation. And this, in fact, may not be be the case. Um, there may have always been something and nothing, and we'll, we'll get into that. Now, I would like to review uh, so what some of the greatest thinkers have had to say on this subject. And I, I've divided this into four different camps. First, there is the Leibniz camp, uh, and that is that the universe must have been created, and Leibniz contended this was, was God that created the universe. Pretty traditional view. Um, the second camp that I've identified, I, I call the Bertrand Russell camp, and that is that the universe is just there. It's just a brute fact, and it, you waste time to try to even think about it. The third camp I call the Krauss camp, which I've named for the contemporary physicist Lawrence Krauss, who wrote a book on this. And he believes that, that particles can, in fact, um, through quantum physics, spontaneously pop into existence out of nothing. So that's the third camp. And then the fourth camp is the Hegel camp. And uh, he, as some of you know, as we've discussed, Hegel put both being and nothing at the very beginning of his logic as coexisting notions. So that's the fourth. So just to summarize, you have the first, which is the will of God, Leibniz position. Secondly, you have the ignore the problem, the Russell position. Third, you have the blind, magical Krauss position that things pop into existence out of nothing. And fourth, the Hegelian position that the question itself is faulty and it implies an occurrence that, that did not happen, uh, that something did not occur out of nothing, that both something and nothing both coexist. So let's go into these in a little more depth. Um, first, Leibniz. Uh, Gottfried Leibniz was a 17th century German philosopher. He was also a, a well-known mathematician. He invented the calculus. He was also one of the early inventors of mechanical calculators. He refined the binary number system, which is the foundational 
computing method used in all computers today. And in philosophy, he's known for advocating the position that this world is the best possible world that God could have created. He used the argument of sufficient reason to explain this position. And this basically is that um, everything must have a reason, a cause for its existence. He is credited with coining the phrase, the principle of sufficient reason, or PSR for short, as it's known in philosophical circles. Now, although he's credited with with, um, coining that phrase, some point to Spinoza as actually formulating this principle a bit earlier. In Spinoza's 1663 book, Principles of Descartes' Philosophy, um, he states, quote, nothing exists of which it cannot be asked what is the cause, why it exists. And in a brief explanatory note to this axiom, Spinoza adds, quote, since existing is something positive, we cannot say that it has nothing as its cause. Therefore, we must assign some positive cause or reason why a thing exists, either an external one, i.e. one outside the thing itself, or an internal one, one comprehended in the nature and definition of the existing thing itself, end quote. But back to Leibniz. He writes in his um, monadology, quote, and that of sufficient reason, by virtue of which we consider that we can find no true or existent fact, no true assertion, without there being a sufficient reason why it is thus and not otherwise, although most of the time these reasons cannot be known to us. There is an infinity of figures of minute inclinations. Now, all of this detail implies previous and more particular contingents, each of which, again, stands in need of similar analysis to be accounted for, so that nothing is gained by such analysis. The sufficient or ultimate reason must therefore exist outside the succession of series of contingent particulars, infinite though the series may be. Consequently, the ultimate reason of all things must subsist in a necessary substance in which all particular changes may exist only virtually as in its source. This substance is what we call God. Okay, that's Leibniz. Now, Aristotle himself had had the notion of the unmover. Perhaps you're familiar with this, a first uncaused cause. In his um, metaphysics, he describes this unmoved mover as being perfectly beautiful, indivisible, and contemplating its its own perfection. So, just to summarize this first camp, his answer to the question is, why is there something from nothing? It's because God created the world. But there's a big question here left unanswered, and it's what every self-respecting three-year-old asks when told God created the world, well, who, who created God? Uh, so, can't we consider God as being part of the something? It's a pretty basic question, and every three-year-old gets it. But let's just move on. Now, let's go to the second interpretation, the, the Russell camp. Bertrand Russell said in a famous radio debate he had in 1948 with philosopher Frederick Copleston, Um, Russell was asked why he thought the universe exists, and Russell responded, I should say that the universe is just there, and that's all. So that sounds like a simplistic answer, but actually it's an interesting complex argument, and many philosophers have have gone into a lot of detail on this. I won't hear, but um, just, you know, for example, just because we think everything in the universe has a cause, does that mean the universe has a cause? Well, perhaps not. 
We can say, just one example, every brick in a wall can be a small brick, but that does not mean that the wall itself is small. So just wanted to present this position, but you know, the bottom line is it's still somewhat unsatisfying. And just because it is there, uh, just because it is, it, it's probably the most common answer a parent gives a three-year-old, but this does not really satisfy a, a, a curiosity. It, um, it, it, it certainly did, did not with me. So just the fact of the universe being a brute fact, um, you still hunger for more. Now, let's see if we can find out anything more in quantum physics, the third camp. As many of you know, that the whole last episode we did on quantum physics, and I'm going to get back a, a little bit more into this here. Uh, physicist Lawrence Krauss wrote a book published in 2013 entitled A Universe from Nothing, Why There is Something Rather Than Nothing. Krauss's position is that the universe is the result of the operation of gravity on the quantum vacuum. This quantum vacuum is purportedly an empty space composed of virtual particles that spontaneously pop into existence. And we discussed in the last episode just how wacky quantum physics can be, how counterintuitive. Um, but is it so wacky that it can actually create something out of nothing? Well, that's the problem. And in some ways, it's, uh, we, we end up in the same position we did in Camp 1 with Leibniz. Um, he said God was the reason, and Krauss is now saying, well, it's quantum gravity. But um, who created quantum gravity? This basic argument appeared in a Sunday book review of the New York Times in, in a review of Krauss's book. Uh, in it, philosopher David Albert accused Krauss of being dead wrong because relativistic quantum field theory cannot explain why there are relativistic quantum fields in the first place. Now, just a bit more on, on quantum physics. Slavoj Žižek has an interesting take on this, um, and uh, this is in regard to the Higgs field, which is hypothesized to underlie all matter and all, all other fields. It's the, the bottom-level field, if you will. Um, now, Žižek is not a physicist. He's a philosopher. And what I'm about to cover is pretty complicated, uh, but it bears on the subject at hand. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a shot here. Um, Žižek says in, in his book, The Puppet and the Dwarf, The Perverse Core of Christianity, 2003, his take here is that if, if you take energy out of a system, you should eventually reach a vacuum. Yet, as you keep lowering the energy of a field, when scientists do that, the Higgs field appears, which allows you to lower the energy even further. So what's interesting here is that, that by adding in the Higgs field, it allows the energy to reduce further. Um, if you take the Higgs field away, energy increases. So what Zizek is pointing out here is that zero energy no longer corresponds to nothingness. If we take energy away from a system, we should eventually uh, expect to reach a vacuum state where the total energy count would be zero. Yet certain phenomena tell us, and I quote Zizek here, there has to be something, some substance that we cannot take away from a given system without raising that system's energy. This substance is called the Higgs field. Once this field appears in a vessel that has been pumped empty and whose temperature has been lowered as much as possible, its energy will then be further lowered. Zizek goes on, quote, nothingness, the void being deprived of all substance and the lowest level of energy paradoxically no longer coincide. That is, it is cheaper. It costs the system less energy to persist in something than to dwell in nothing. 
at the lowest level of tension or in the void, the dissolution of all being. So to summarize, once a system's energy has been lowered to the point where it approaches zero, this, quote, Higgs field appears, which possesses less energy than nothing, end quote, and from Zizek. Now, this has some profound implications, even metaphysically. We cannot get the energy field of a system to zero without adding the Higgs field into the equation. So this suggests that the concept of nothingness is an inconsistent concept. This is what Zizek is bringing out, that something appears to to be needed to get us to nothingness. Now, I, I came up with an, an analogy here. To, it, it helped me think about it. It's the use of negative numbers. And again, this is my analogy. Let's say you're counting down from 10 to 0. You want to get to a lower and lower, lower number. So you go 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3. And your aim is to get to 0. Now, let's just say when you get to 3, uh, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a negative 1 shows up. Okay, so uh, that's now here. So now a negative 3 plus minus 1 is 2. So now you have 2. No, but if you throw out that negative one, you're back to three. So you need to bring in the negative one to get you to to two. And to get from two to one, another another negative one shows up, getting you to one, and likewise from one to zero. So the analogy is to get to zero, and once you get to three, you need to add three negative ones in to get you down to zero. So in my analogy here, this is um, these negative numbers represent the Higgs field, and it's very rough. Analogy. I'm not saying that the Higgs field is a negative number, but it's just a way to visualize this concept of actually adding something in to get you less. And this is what Zizek is pointing out, this inconsistency. Now, this Higgs field is a really sort of on the forefront of um, quantum physics today. And just recently, a few years ago, they discovered um, the, this Higgs boson p- particle, which is some, some call it the God particle. It's what gives mass to, to particles in the first place, what makes them actual. Now, enough on that on the quantum physics. But, but again, we run into the same problem with the Higgs field. And that is that the Higgs field is a something. So one has not really gotten rid of everything in getting to a zero energy field. There lies the Higgs field at the bottom of it all. So we're still left with the question, why is there something rather than nothing? There's still something there, the Higgs field. Now, let's move to the fourth camp, the, the Hegelian camp, if you will. And this is the one that I believe is, uh, is the best way to look at it. The Hegel approach would, would call the basic question into account. It's a, it's a, a false dilemma, a false choice, if you will. Take the statement, something rather than nothing. Why is there something rather than nothing? That has a presupposition built into it, and that is that these are opposing concepts. If, if something is there, then uh, it means that nothing is not there. Now, th- that's an obvious basic way to understand things. If there's a red car in the driveway, as opposed to no red car in the driveway, that's an either-or situation. If there's an apple on the table, as opposed to no apple on the table, these are um, contrasting situations. So we think of something as opposed to nothing as being put there by a cause. If there's a red car in the driveway, that means somebody has parked a red car in the driveway. If there's an apple on the table, rather than no apple, it's because someone put the apple there. So 
The question, why is there something rather than nothing, assumes an either-or situation. We know there is something, uh, we have being, so there's something and not nothing. So the understanding, the logic would say, but is that really true? Well, Hegel has an answer here, and I believe that it's not that there is something rather than nothing, it's that there is both something and nothing. Something versus nothing is a product of our left brain either or thinking. Let's review what Hegel has to say on it right in the beginning of his logic. Hegel starts his logic with presuppositionless being, which turns out to be actually nothing because it contains no attributes. Yet nothing in turn has its own reality uh, because it, it contains no attributes either. So it turns out to be something. This, this nothingness is also something. So there's a counterplay here. Something becomes nothing, and then nothing becomes something. This leads to the notion of becoming. Uh, something becomes nothing. Nothing becomes something. And there's a going back and forth here um, at the same time. Now, interestingly, and we've discussed this, the cosmos itself is always in a state of becoming, as in time. Uh, we detailed this in episode three of The Cunning of Geist. So something here, which we're calling presuppositional being and nothing, these are the, the core foundations of becoming. So why is there something rather than nothing is an incorrect statement. Uh, the answer is these two notions, something and nothing, are always in play. They're both contained in the notion of becoming. Becoming is always balancing something and nothing by moving forward. The movement of the present moment of time is a great example of this. Every moment is both a coming into being and a dissolution of that moment. Um, it, it's born and dies at the same time. Um, and this exists, they both exist in this notion of becoming. So becoming is really the, the central concept here, which embodies both being and nothing. Now, just an important point here. There is a difference between presuppositional being and something, which Hegel gets to. Something actually appears just a bit later in the logic. Um, we covered this in detail in episode four. Let me give you a quick rundown. We, we get to the notion of becoming from being and nothing. And the state of becoming, though, it does persist. And it's now called determinant being. It, it's much like the way the present moment persists, even though each moment is a, is a, is a birth and a death. It, this, the, 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 the movement persists of the, uh, of the now. And, and likewise, this is what, what uh, being persists as, as determinant being. And the fact that being is not determinant being means that it has a quality. This is what Hegel, how Hegel goes through in the beginning of the logic. This persisting is a quality of determinant being. And this, this quality has two sides. It, it has a quality of coming into being and a quality of ceasing into being. So the quality of being is reality. The quality of nothing is negation. So there's two qualities, reality and negation. So when taken together, then, you can look at it as a something. Being now is determined by what it is and what it is not. This, then, is what Hegel calls a something. This is the first abstract um, notion, concept of a something. Being and nothing through determinant being, having a quality, now becomes a something. A something is defined by what it is and what it is not. And as I said, this is Fagel's most primitive abstract concept of something. It's not yet a red car in a driveway. It's not an apple on a table. It's just the most basic notion of, of something. 
defined by what it is and what it is not. So being and nothing are always present in something as reality and negation. Uh, and it can't be any other way per Hegel. Contemporary philosopher Robert Nozick uh, agrees with Hegel here. He, he's quoted, So why is there something rather than nothing? There isn't. There's both. Now, just one final note here. You know, philosophy is a wonderful thing, and uh, it helps us think things out and think things through. Um, and, you know, at the bottom of it all, though, though, there is us, the thinkers. Jim Holt, the author I cited earlier, mentioned the philosopher Henri Bergson's take on this problem. Uh, quote, Bergson, a 20th century French philosopher, tried to visualize nothingness. He could eliminate the people, the matter, space, and time, but he was left with himself. He could never get rid of the observer. Even if there is nothingness, there has to be an observer. So we could never get to an absolute nothingness. You know, we can, um, we can think about absolute nothingness, but you're still there, the thinker, at the bottom of it all. Now, how does this play in, into Hegel's philosophy? Well, Hegel does get to a thinking subject in his philosophy. It doesn't start there, though, and that, that's an important, important notion. He starts with pure presuppositionless being and nothing. He does start with an observer in the phenomenology, and he did state that the, uh, the phenomenology could be looked at in some degree as a preface to the logic, but he also said that the logic can stand on its own. I'm not going to get into that debate here, but maybe some other time. But my point is, if we look at this as the observer being at the bottom of it all, well, who created that observer, that, that thinker? And I think what we're seeing here with Hegel is perhaps it was never created, but always existed. Again, this Hegel's logic is not in time. It's an abstract notion. It, time does not appear until nature, uh, when he gets into nature. This is just pure logic thinking, which is timeless. So if you say, you know, who created this thinker uh, who, who's thinking this logic? Well, perhaps it was never created. It was always becoming. The problem with coming up with the creator of the thinker is that that leads to the infinite regress, that the three-year-old says, well, who created the creator? Who created the creator of the creator? And so on. Um, and that's a form of false infinity, in my view. You know, Hegel talks a lot about false infinity versus true infinity. Just continuing to add something, that's a, uh, that's a mathematical infinity, but it's not the true infinity. It, it doesn't exist as reality. Hegel uh, views the absolute as a circle. And what's the beginning of a circle? There is none. True infinity, the absolute, is a circle. It's an evolving spiral, if you will. Um, and you know, we, our minds, our, our freedom are foundational to it. Um, we discussed this in detail in episode 24, Substance is Subject. Now, if the absolute can be viewed as a circle of perpetual becoming, and there is freedom, then life itself in mean, mind is an evolving spiral, if you will. And, and as such, um, you know, there may be a probabilistic route ahead of us, just like in quantum physics, um, a route that has been traveled before, but yet awaits us as a, in a state of probability. And uh, we have the freedom to bring it to life and to improve upon it. Uh, not just live it um, as what's given, but but actually, you know, uh, make it more productive, make it better, make it more mindful, etc. And that is our purpose here. Well, we certainly covered a lot, and that's it for this episode. Uh, I'm Gregory Novak. This is the Cunning of Geist podcast. 
please follow my Facebook page at Cunning of Geist. And as I've said before, I will list all the references that I covered here in, in that Facebook page, the Cunning of Geist, and all the, the absolute details of the, of the references here. So thank you so much for listening. Please tell your friends who may enjoy this podcast uh, about it. Help spread the word. I'm very excited about the positive reaction that, we're, that I'm receiving here and the, the discussions I'm having uh, online about it. So that's it for this episode. Thanks again for coming. See you next time.